Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Oh. Oh. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. I'm glad you appreciate the effort. And um, well, I hope you're not just being nice because uh, I feel under more pressure than I usually do to look pretty good today because I am surrounded by a bevy of sort of fabulous women. I've looked it up. Bevy is the collective noun. Because for this particular <laughs> gathering of our um, salon of conversations, we are inspired in part by this being the 100th anniversary since Irish women got the vote. And in greater part, perhaps, by the fact that yesterday, and I'm going to say this for Radio Land, this is pre-recorded, so in our real world, it was yesterday that um, we got a very emphatic result to repeal the Eighth Amendment. So, uh, <laughs> a very exciting day. Um, and so inspired by those two things, we wanted to celebrate, well, the story of Irish women, really, and to sort of look at how those lives have changed, you know, from our grannies to our mothers to our daughters and nieces, and so to do that, I have brought together a rather special group of women who, um, considering that we've just said goodbye to the Eighth Amendment, I'd like to think of them as my box of after eights. <laughs> oh, I know that was cringy bad. Anyway, today here with me we have some awesome and all, and first up we have a dulcet-toned traditional singer who hails from Waterford but has migrated to County Cork since they relaxed the visa requirements. It's uh, Karen Casey. Hello. Hi. And then Karen is the hand behind Fair Play, P-L-E, FADA, mm -hmm. which is a gender equality initiative in traditional folk music. And then next to Karen over here is a young playwright with her roots in County Clare, but who now lives in London. It's Eva O'Connor. And her so recent play, Maz and Bricks, is a love story set against the backdrop of a Repeal the Eighth protest. So welcome, Eva. And then we have accidental activist, which is something I know about myself, um, Samantha Long, adopted from a Magdalene Laundry as a baby, and she's become a voice, really, for women like her birth mother. So welcome, Samantha. Thank you. And next to Samantha on the other side over there is um, sociologist Linda Connolly. She's from the Royal County of Meath, where I went to school, and like Karen, she migrated I think for love, in this case, to County Cork. <laughs> Lynn's the author of a book about the women's movement in Ireland and how rights have often dripped rather slowly. So welcome, Linda. Lovely to have you. <laughs> and Finalmore, Moore, it's a woman that I know very well, Kira Sedin. Kira she has a day job, and her day job is in book publishing, and she was the very lucky woman who was given the job to edit my memoir. So I know her as a very stern lady who's correcting my grammar, but <laughs> it, her real passion is music and uh, songwriting, and her last album, Unbroken Line, gives voice to the often hidden lives of women, particularly in our less than illustrious past. But more about that later, as we say. <laughs> but first, I'm going to get to... Uh, Talk about the awesome Manoa in my own life, in what we call the panty monologues. I come from, well, a succession of formidable women, awesome Manoa. And I think it's passed down, this awesomeness. Now, my grandmother, Granny Hoban, my mother's mother, was a formidable woman. 
as a kid, my respect for her occasionally teetered into fear because <laughs> unlike other less formidable grandmothers, my granny didn't think that being a granny was a popularity contest. And she wasn't afraid to risk fleeting unpopularity with a stern talking to her in order to bed. She lived frugally in a small red brick terrace in Dolphin's Bar that she shared with a succession of student lodgers who no doubt knew their place. But when she stepped off the train in County Mayo, it wasn't hard to spot her. Well, you don't see anybody else on the platform in Claire Morris in a fur coat. <laughs> how old that fur coat was and how long it had been since someone could afford to buy her a fur coat, well, that's none of your bloody business. <laughs> they had spent the war in England, my Granny Hoban and my Mammy. Grandpa Hoban was a vet, a professional. Well, of course he was. You'd hardly expect a woman like Granny Hoban, a woman who owns her own fur coat, to marry someone without an education, would you? Granny Hoban was a firm believer in education. They had settled in England, and in fairly quick succession, Granny had four children, first two boys, then two girls, my own mammy being the third child. And then Granny Hoban's lovely vet, he went and got TB and died the Egypt, <laughs> leaving her alone in wartime Britain, an Irish single mother with four young kids and a fur coat. But as you already know, Granny Hoban was a formidable woman, resilient, hardworking, tough. When the war ended, my formidable granny took her children back to Dublin, where she got a job in Guinness. And somehow, through a combination of ingenuity, hard work, discipline, the redoubtable Irish matriarch managed to feed clothe and care for her four kids on a Guinness secretary's salary. But they would finish secondary school soon. And then what for these children of a single mother in a red brick terrace on the South Circular Road? Granny Hoban was determined that the two boys would get a proper university education like their father. And Granny Hoban had a plan. The eldest had the makings of a priest. Every family needed a priest. <laughs> and the bonus was, of course, that the church would provide for him and his education which left the second boy. He'd be a vet like his father, and Granny Hoban would work and scrimp hard to pay for his education. But even she couldn't do everything on her own, and so my mammy, the third child, would have to finish her education and get a job to help her brother be a vet. And so my mammy, whip smart, book smart, uh, a reader, a young woman with the kind of mind that soaked up information, a hard-working, disciplined and diligent student who would have thrived at university. Well, like her mother, she too was resilient and did what was expected of her without complaint for the greater good. And so the second son went to university and became a vet. But my mother did get something out of the university too. Her brother brought home a classmate, a tall, handsome, languid fella who had come to take her little sister to a dance. But for the first and last time in my mother's life, she stole something. <laughs> and 60 years later, she still has him. So, you see, I come from a line of truly awesome women, and I've gotten to know plenty more too. I was a teenage college student living in a moldy basement flat in Dunleary when my friend came to stay with me for a little while back when we were not much more than kids ourselves, me and my awesome friend. But she wasn't feeling very awesome at the time. She felt terrified and alone and pregnant. It was 1987, and her father wasn't the kind of man a teenage daughter could tell she was pregnant in Ireland in 1987. So she did the sensible thing and didn't tell him. Instead, she found an excuse to leave 
and ended up for a while in a dank, moldy basement apartment with a friend, a boy who felt useless. But my friend wasn't useless. She was resilient, and she found a way out, the only way out for a painless, pregnant Irish teenager in 1987. And like all the formidable women that came before her, she did what she had to do without complaint. We took a noisy, diesel-smelling bus to a village that we had never heard of before in County Meath. It was a big grey stone house outside the village, surrounded by fields and quiet, round sheep. The door was answered by a nun, a friendly nun who smiled and made small talk and pretended that this wasn't awkward and weird and scary and led us down a corridor where we caught glimpses of more quiet, round sheep, except they weren't sheep. They were girls, and they were all different sizes of round, and they had fathers and brothers in towns and villages you couldn't tell you were pregnant in 1987. And a short while later, I left her there. I visited her. I got the smelly bus again. She was rounder. She'd made friends with some of the other girls, but they didn't stay long, and they wouldn't stay in touch afterwards. Why would they? The nuns were nice. The food was grand. The other girls were nice. More than nice, they were awesome, even if they didn't know it or feel it yet. We didn't have a phone in the moldy basement flat, but I did get a message, and so I called her from a phone box. She had baby, a boy. She told me how much he weighed, and I can tell from the way that she said it that I was supposed to be impressed by how big he was, and so I said, wow. She had him for a day. Maybe it was more or less. I can't really remember. And then they brought her some papers to sign, and they took him away. Apparently, he was going to a very nice couple, professionals. <clears throat> they sent her a picture once. <clears throat> the nuns, I mean. The nuns sent her a picture once. It was a long time ago, and um, in all the years, we've hardly ever mentioned it since. Well, why would we, anyway? And um, we don't see much of each other these days, anyway. We have different lives. And she has her own family now, and she is still my friend, and she's still awesome. <clears throat> Sorry. Hi. <clears throat> <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, I'm going to come to you first, Kira, because um, you're a known quality. <laughs> um, to me, of all the things that have happened in the recent past, here in Ireland, if we look at, say, the two referendums that we've had in the last few years, really what it is about is breaking silences, telling our secrets, and refusing to be shamed about them anymore. I mean, is that what it is? Very much so, yeah. I, you have me in bits there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was afraid that was going to happen. But anyway. <clears throat> but it's a completely appropriate, and we're all in bits anyway mm. today. And every woman I know over the past days and weeks even, particularly the last week, have just been on such an incredible emotional roller coaster. And it is about silence, and it is about shame, and it is about now those things just being moved aside, like pushing a door that we didn't quite know was open. Yeah. And being involved in this campaign over the last few years towards repeal, yeah. I didn't want to think we're going to have a landslide. It almost seemed that that was too daring a yeah, thing to yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and and I just felt if we get this over the line, that's what we need to do. And that's all we need to do. And we can then create the change that we need to create. It's sort of let's light in or something. It's just like the flood of light. And I just could not have predicted it. And the evening of the referendum, when we didn't expect we would find out what we found out. I'll never, ever forget it. It was one of the most, I'm going to cry now, (laughs) but it really was one of the most significant moments of my life. And I was with my sister and... um, you know, we just held each other and cried. And my daughters were there and they were very involved in this. And like yeah. no children outside Ireland could possibly have such an understanding of these issues. You yeah. know, it's quite incredible what's been held up to public inspection. And it, it, it's something that I'll treasure forever. And Samantha, because you you were adopted out of a Magdalene laundry. Yeah. And that was, a, it was a sort of a national secret in a way. Yeah. When you sort of found that out and explored that, was it something that then healed you of it all and it's, it's all, you know, um, it's, it's that simple? Or No, it's, it's not really that simple. Mm-hmm. When your life story unfolds, when you're reading about your beginnings and your mother's beginnings and endings, it does affect you. And I, I think I just realise as I'm getting older and since I became a mother myself, how affecting it has been because yeah. our mother was incarcerated in the industrial school system and the laundries for 49 years out of her 51 year Incredible. life. She was sent in at age two to High Park. She was working at the age of five, preparing breakfast for 70 kids, including herself. Then she was sent to the laundry where she was impregnated. She didn't go in with a round belly. And twice that happened to her. And she gave birth to three daughters. I'm one of twins. And um, my sister Etta and I were very involved in campaigning, me more so because I was in Ireland and she lives in New York. So I think... As a mum, I realise my son, who's in the audience, who's 14, I was pregnant with him when the Magdalene Laundries campaign started, when we started our own personal campaign. And he was born at half three in the afternoon. And I remember at half ten at night, still staring at him in his perspex cot. And the nurses said, you know, you've had an epidural, you've given birth to a child, you need to lie down, you need to take a rest And I just cried and I said to the nurse, I am never letting him out of my sight. The poor kid. And that, yeah, (laughs) he'd probably love if I did. But that I realised then that there was a kind of an innate protective lioness that wasn't Mm going to let my kids out of my sight. And those are deep rooted effects of abandonment and sadness and loss. Because although I had a really happy adoptive experience Margaret, our mother, lost everything. And that makes me feel very sad. Yeah. Karen, you were inspired really, I guess, in a lot of ways by the sort of waking the feminists and to start fair play. Well, it's basically a movement that we started. A lot of us, I'm a singer, and a lot of us were having conversations backstage about how we were being treated. And I think, you know, with everything that was going on in the world, um, Harvey Weinstein, Mm -hmm. the Me Too movement, Waking the Feminists here, we sort of started to reframe how we uh, thought about ourselves and saw ourselves. And I think... um, You know, I've had a long history of sort of singing political songs and social justice songs, but I never really uh, um, talked or sang about myself Mm -hmm. and about how women are actually treated. And, you know, I want to stress that my life has been great. Uh, Having creativity in any woman's life is amazing. But I suppose we felt we weren't being honoured a lot of the time or listened to. A lot of the time we were dismissed within 
the music industry, aside from just sort of slights and sexist mm-hmm. jokes, and it all actually adds up. I think yep. you you absorb it and you think that mm-hmm. that's normal. And it really takes something seismic to shift that. So I think yesterday for myself was um, sort of an accumulation of that knowledge that I knew deeply in myself. Mm-hmm. But I, I used the songs as a bam but I rarely spoke out about it. And I think yesterday, on the paper, it might have been about this single amendment, but it felt bigger than that. It felt, how, how do you feel about you know, Irish women? It's I mean, momentous. It, yeah. I mean, it's just enormous for us to feel. I think the core is respect. Yeah. Like for me, listening to the radio, when I turn it on now, the yeah. person on the radio actually is saying the things that are in my head. And I don't feel isolated or excluded. Yep. I feel like I belong. You know, that narrative mm-hmm. is so of so much value. I mean, obviously, it's been in the songs all along. But yeah. if we're talking and actually saying uh, what we feel and what we need, we have to step up and say what we need. Yeah. And we've done that now. Yeah. And even now, you know, people might look at you and say, you're young, you're beautiful. But for <laughs> you too, this sort of opening up and speaking out has been a huge part of your work. And obviously your last play was set against the backdrop of the Repeal the Eight movement, but you've also told your own very personal story, both, uh, you know, on stage and on BBC. And it's it's really about how women are viewed too. Definitely. I I think I've gone on a very long journey. Um, I had an abortion in 2013 in the UK, in Scotland, and... All the doctors and nurses who treated me were Irish, totally by chance. And they were so kind to me. And every single one of them individually said, at least you're not at home. And I was just really struck by the irony of that, of Irish women helping Irish women abroad. And since then, I've made a lot of work. I made a play called My Name is Saoirse, which was set in the 80s. And I kind of wanted to tell my own story, but remove it a couple of decades, set it in a different county. But I suppose the journey's been much bigger than that. It's been like speaking out and people sending me emails when I initially came out saying things like, you never told me you had an abortion. I can't believe you did an interview without telling me. Or saying like, are you sure you want to do this? Or my Mm. parents saying it would be actually better if you didn't go public with this. Mm. Like we support you, but maybe don't go shouting about it in the media. And I actually got an amazing WhatsApp from my mum this morning and she said, congratulations, I feel like you've all been pushing this door open for so long and now it's open. Linda, I have you here to be, you know, the psychological head of this gathering because you've written a book about women's lives in Ireland and when these changes happen, is it always because somebody stands up and says, you know, this is my story? Yes, partly that. I was 12 in 1983, so I, I remember it very well. Mm. And like that, something in the, the 12-year-old in me seemed to come out yesterday where just something was let go. You know, it was like a shadow just lifted. And I suppose a very important in terms of the stigma that has been carried around by Irish women for such a yeah. long time. So I think we have to go back to the 1970s, really. Yes, because I would say that yeah. somebody who's sort of not often mentioned in this whole story is Mary McGee. Absolutely. Or, am I overstating that or would you agree? Um, No, I agree. I mean, so Mary McGee took a case where she challenged the right to access 
contraception for, for reasons of marital privacy. Contraception was illegal in Ireland until 1979 when it was legalised for married couples only by prescription. So obviously there was a lot of people pretending to be married or it could be used as yeah. a cycle regulator. But, but her doctor said if you get pregnant again, yeah. you could die. Absolutely. So yes. she had to use contraception. She did and she won her case. Yeah. So I suppose what you yeah. have again is individual women taking brave steps. You know, the UK legalized abortion in 1967. We didn't even have legal contraception, never yeah. mind abortion. So a lot of what happened in Ireland came out of exactly what you were talking about, Samantha, you know, that kind of dark period where the, the worst possible thing that could happen to a woman was to get pregnant outside marriage, to be an unmarried mother. And so contraception, I suppose, was seen as the first step, as key to the yeah. liberation of Irish women in the 1970s. So, so, so Mary McGee's case was, I suppose, part of that general tumult, which was direct action. But, but would it be true to say that the sort of reactionary forces looked at the result oh, yeah. of Mary McGee's case yes. and said, OK, she won that case, so someone will take a case about abortion, so we need to get it into the Constitution. Absolutely. And that resulted in the Eighth Amendment. So in the early 80s then, it was actually the pro-life campaign that put the issue of a referendum mm -hmm. onto the agenda in order to what was called copper fasten the ban on abortion. A bit like uh, homosexuality, abortion was already criminalised under the 1861 Offences Against the, the Person Act. Mm -hmm. So a woman could be jailed up to life for having an abortion. So the fear was that women were using contraceptives, they were beginning to assert their right to control their fertility. So it was very much, it came from, I suppose, the organisation of a Catholic right group. They, of course, they were against everything. I mean, they mm. were against not just contraception, but they were against divorce. Fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah. Well, because, you know, the, the current Mr. Bliss is a younger gentleman. And um, so he was like stunned when I was saying to him, when I was a college student, you couldn't get a condom. Mm. Yes. And, you know, it wasn't until 1993 that you could get them in a vending machine. Yeah. Before yeah. the, you had to go to a bloody doctor. Yeah. Um, Kira, so um, I'm going to come back to you because um, you have a song finest flower. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you know, where it comes from. And so it's a song that I wrote to honour the, the stories of women who survived mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries. And um, one particular story touched me very deeply and it was the story of a woman who mm. gave birth to a little boy in Galway in a mother and baby home in 1940. And her name was Christina Mulcahy. And they loved their babies and they never, ever let go of that bond. And I don't think it is a bond that anyone can break. So nobody really can kind of take away that power mm -hmm. either of, of love. OK, let's hear it. Well, shall we? OK. So this is Fine as Flower. There's a valley of stone deep down in my soul.
she'd get free Though she made good her plan Did she know she'd be running still When out into the night she ran For Jenny Dwyer The same night came By a fever taken so they told us They who took her name Sam, I want to come to you. So the story of your mother and you and your sister is astounding. And we could literally sit here all day, all asking you questions about it. So you were adopted out of Magdalene Laundry with your twin sister and you were adopted to a wonderful couple. Well, we were adopted from St. Patrick's Mm. in Dublin. And then dad got a plumbing contract in Sligo. And we ended up staying there. And they were very open about that you'd been adopted from day one. And there was no secrets there and everything. And then your sister, she was the first one to really wanted to fi- yeah, track down to your trace, birth mother. Yeah. And I, I'm really, I want you to tell people the story of meeting your mother for the first time. In the Gresham. The Gresham. Yeah. Gresham. So my twin sister has started the two-year process and I had absolutely no interest. I said, I, I already have a mum. I don't need mm-hmm. another mum. So after the two-year period, we got to May 1995 and Etta had said to me, you know, I'm meeting her now next week. Will you please come? She can't meet half of her twins. She has to meet the whole set. So I said, yes, I will come. And um, that day was my mum and dad, my twin sister, my future husband, who I'd just met, and um, social worker, and a nun on the other side, Mm -hmm. who was Margaret's liaison. So we found out that Margaret actually lived around the corner from the Gresham. She was incarcerated in the Gloucester Street Laundry in Sean McDermott Street for 36 years but never thought that she would ever walk through the doors of that hotel or be allowed in because she had no money and she had no freedom. So when we met her that day in the Gresham, Mm -hmm. it was incredibly emotional. Um, I couldn't stop staring at her face, looking for me in her face. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't see me, but now I can. (laughs) So when I look at photos now, even of that day, I just look so like her. It's it's unbelievable. So she was very, very institutionalised. She was wearing a really old-fashioned dress, like an old lady's dress. And um, she had a a navy cheap handbag. And the handbag fell open and there was absolutely nothing inside it. 
um, because she had nothing. So some kind person had given her the handbag as a prop, you know, because that's what ladies should have in the Gresham. Mm. And the waiter came around to offer us the tea and coffee and we just politely asked Margaret, would you like tea or coffee? And she said, what, what are you having? We're having coffee. Do, do you take sugar, Margaret? Well, do you take sugar, she said. Do you take milk? Everything was just copying what we might like her to do. Mm-hmm. So she tasted the coffee and was just totally astounded. So in 1995, it was the first time she had ever tasted coffee in her life or seen coffee. And um, we were trying to ask her about herself. And we said, what, you know, what is your work? What do you do? And she said, well, I, I do the laundry. And we said, like, what, what sort of laundry do you do? Towels or what's your work like? Is it hard? And she said, well, I've done the same laundry all my life. I do Mount Joy. So she was washing prisoners' uh, bed linen and clothing. And, you know, we were just absolutely stunned that she was what we thought was imprisoned and she was washing prisoners' laundry for no money for 36 years. And um, she seemed a little bit ashamed of our shock. It reminded me of your noble call we were checking ourselves all the time to try and not be judgmental and and also we didn't want to feel judged. We didn't want to feel privileged or anything in front mm-hmm. of her. So that was a real learning experience for us as young girls in our 20s that we had come across this very humble, vulnerable woman who was actually our mother. And we were trying to navigate do we love her? Do we like her? Mm-hmm. Um, do we feel sorry for her? How do we get through all this? So we had an eight-year relationship with her until her death mm. um, in 2003. And uh, it was, I have no regrets. And, and just to be very clear for people, maybe younger people who are listening, yeah. she, she wasn't in a prison. No. She hadn't done anything wrong. No. And she'd been there since she was two years old. Yeah, yeah. And she'd become pregnant twice. Yes. While in while, this institution. While behind... Uh, a locked gate and a locked door. And um, when the social workers were counselling her for three weeks before she met us, one of them said to her, your daughters have have come to find you and it's them and they're here and they want to meet you. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. I never had any children. And she had three children. She had another girl four years after us. And they said, no, we have the birth certificates and we have all the backup and your twins are are here and, and they'd like to meet you soon. I think it was post-traumatic stress disorder. She completely blocked out the fact that she had daughters. So it was an intensely difficult roller coaster for her and for us, but more so for her. It, it was quite an unusual thing for us to reconcile in the mid-1990s that this had happened in modern Ireland. And there she was right in front of us at age 41. It literally sounds like something from 1790. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then she died at only 51, yes. and she died from, well, a, a disease that you can maybe only get from laundry chemicals. Yeah, um, I went to get her death certificate in Lombard Street, which I have hardly ever cried during this whole 14 years, but I cried that day. I, I gave over my tenor to get her death certificate and just reading her date of birth and her date of death. And the cause of death was good pasture syndrome which obviously I had to Google. It's a syndrome which leads to end-stage kidney and liver failure due to inhalation over many years of laundry chemicals. 
and um, she died age 51 of that syndrome from her 49 years of slavery. What a miserable life. Miserable. And the first day we met her in the Gresham, we had prepared a little pocket photo album of our life from age one to age 21. All the milestones and all the occasions. And in 2016, my my mother-in-law died and the priest who was officiating at her funeral came to the house to help us make the arrangements. And um, he asked me about myself and where I was from and I explained And he happened to be the priest who ministered to the women in the laundry for all those years. And he said, there's one thing I remember about her, her photo album. He said she carried it in the pocket of her apron every day of her life. And she showed it to somebody every day of her life. Incredible. Karen, Mm. you have a song. And it's by Janice Ian, a hero of mine, a lesbian freedom fighter. and uh, so, yeah, tell us so a little bit. It's called I'm Still Standing Here. Good. Let's hear it. We, yeah, we please. If anybody had any tissues, does anybody have <laughs> 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 Should have thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. See these lines upon my face. They're a map of where I've been. In the deep they are traced. Deeper life has settled in. How do we survive living out our lives? And I, I wouldn't trade a line, make it smooth and fine, or pretend that time stands still. I want to rest my soul. Here where it can grow without fear Another line, another year I'm still standing here See these bruises, see these scars Hieroglyphs that tell the tale You can read them in the dark Through your fingertips like braille Oh, and I, I wouldn't trade a line Make it smooth and fine Or pretend that time stands still I want to rest my soul Here where it can grow without fear Another line, another year I'm still standing here Thanks, Karen. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, Eva, I want to come to you. Now, you started off in ballet, which surprised me because I didn't know that about you. Um, but then that sort of makes some sense because the other thing that you have spoken about a lot is you, you had your anorexia. And, you know, the ballet word is notorious. We've all seen um, Black Swan. And um, <laughs> notorious for sort of really picking at you hard because mm. about your weight and all of that stuff. 
Would you trace it to that? Well, as a teenager, I was really involved in dance, like to like a really high level, you know, going kind of four or five times a week, like thinking about whether I wanted to do dance after school. Mm. And then when I was about 14, I started to get really sick and mm. my parents knew I was sick and my teachers knew I was sick. And then eventually they ended up bribing me saying I could do a transition year dance program if I agreed to get help and admit I had a problem and <laughs> go to counselling, which changed my life completely I would recommend therapy to everyone and I also believe recovery is 100% possible yeah. but yeah the ballet question is interesting because I think eating disorders are caused by a huge array of things and it's different for every person and I don't think you can really blame dance in the same way you, you can't really blame the media for giving people eating disorders mm. either like I think they probably contribute to it a bit but like a lot of people who do dance to a really high level are very driven people and mm -hmm. they driven people tend to be people who mm. get eating disorders but now um so you're going to do a piece for us, which is from the play you wrote, um, My Name is Saoirse. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to, the piece you're going to do for us. So it's a one-person show about a, a girl called mm. Saoirse who's growing up in rural Ireland in the 80s. Her mum died giving birth to her and she's kind of carried around this immense guilt and Saoirse ends up getting pregnant after a night out when she's like 15 and goes to England in secret. And I was very keen that I wanted to make a play where it was an aspect of the play. Like I really believe that abortion mm. doesn't have to define them. So it, it, this is kind of the end part and it's her kind of coming to terms with what's happened and she's in her attic and she sews she loves sewing yep. and she's kind of putting different pieces of fabric together to make sense of her life good let's hear it <clears throat> i kept myself to myself in the days after england i told dad i had a really bad tummy bug and he believed me saying he had never seen me looking so washed out on my first morning at home on my own i lay on the floor in the black and white hallway listening to the silence ringing in my ears. It felt like my life had been sewn up all wrong in stitching I couldn't rip back. That afternoon, I went down the town to buy some milk for Brendan. And I wanted to get him some to say thank you for being so good to me before I went away. The night before I left, I tapped on his door and went in and sat in the end of his bed. I told him that I had to go away for the weekend, up to Dublin, for an interview for a job next year. When he asked me what the job was, I couldn't think of anything to say, and I just burst into tears. <laughs> he told me not to worry at all, that he'd tell Da, and he hoped I got the job. <laughs> I went to Heaney's for the milk, and I got a packet of fags for Mrs Larkin too. When I was coming out of the shop, I saw Siobhan across the road, outside Wilson's. She looked as striking as ever. Her long red hair was down around her shoulders. Her silver scrunchie was on her wrist. You well, love? Do you fancy coming in for a quick drink? I wanted to drop the milk and run across the road to her. I wanted to race her up the hill to the water tower and spin her round and around with her. I wanted to hug her and hold on to her and make everything go back to the way it used to be. Oh no, thanks, Siobhan. I should be getting back. And I turned for home. The next day I had a bit more energy and I knew what I had to do. I got up and dressed into my duck egg blue dress that Auntie Mary had given me for Christmas. It was a bit big on me. I was thinner now, but I liked how it made me feel. Graceful, like a lady. We only ever visited Mam once a year on her anniversary, my birthday, the 3rd of January. Da hated the place. He said that there was no point in crying over a stone in the ground. 
I felt nervous going on my own, but I just put one foot in front of the other. And before I knew it, I was down at the church, making my way through the gravelly car park in the rusty gate. Mam's was a plain grey one down the back on the left. I like to think that she wouldn't have minded that it was nothing special, <laughs> that she wouldn't have wanted anyone fussing over her. When I put the flowers down, I couldn't help thinking how small and dull they looked. I had a pain in my chest and in my heart. Why did you have to die, ma'am? Why did you have to go and die and leave me on my own, ma'am? If I could have chosen, I would have let you live instead, ma'am. And it's not my fault. And I know that dad thinks it is, but it's not, ma'am. And it's not my fault that I look the spit of it. I never asked to look the same as you. And I didn't want to go to England, ma'am. But I had to. I couldn't have a baby. And I'm tired, ma'am. I'm tired of always feeling sad and guilty. And suddenly, there was a big gust of wind. And my duck egg blue dress was flapping. And I had goosebumps all over my skin. And I realised... Mam wouldn't want me to be sad. She'd want me to be brave and happy. She chose my name weeks before I was even born. Sirsha means freedom. Mam named me to be free. Uh, Linda, you know, one thing yesterday, you started watching the result and all, um, although I will say, I had a moment of, wait a second, they prefer abortion to the gays? Like, there's no such thing as an end to these things, but there did feel like it was a solid thing. And to me, part of that was that in order to put these things into the past, we need to acknowledge them. And... You know, sometimes we're always looking for reparations in a way and um, because the money represents a sort of an apology or an acknowledgement that these things happened. And yesterday felt like we've acknowledged something and that now it can go into our history or, or our past. Yes, I think so. I mean, mm. the thing that really moved me was when I heard the crowd chanting Savita, Savita. And I think it was highly significant in terms of being, I suppose, a healing moment. Mm. And that's where you see that shift away from the idea that this isn't just about sort of, you know, women who've got got in trouble, Mm. kind of quietly going to England. This was in our maternity hospitals. And it changed the whole focus of the debate away from reproductive choice as something in its own right to the protection Mm -hmm. of mothers with a so-called pregnancy that was very much wanted and that the eighth was a a danger Mm. to women in terms of our health. And I think as well in terms of the role of the, the church and state as well, it was absolutely a significant moment where that distinction between private morality and what we might call public ethics for the first time, I think, becomes Mm. decoupled so that you can have a personal belief, but that there's a public ethics, which is the correct thing to do. So I think a lot of that arose ironically because motherhood came back into the discussion about abortion alongside 
a woman's right to choose. It's funny because you sort of said, you know, you wanted pregnancy and all that as against what we say when a woman you know, gets into trouble. Or my favourite is a very Irish one when she, she falls pregnant. Mm. Yes. <laughs> like, like she tripped onto a penis. You know, I, I, you know like... Uh, uh, but, um, now, Kira, you have another song for us, and that is essentially about women and trouble. Yeah, so um, yeah. the song Trouble Can Find Me, which I'm going to do for you, comes from the idea that we can't have change without trouble. We have yeah. to make noise mm. in order to kind of change the ground we're standing on. And it was certainly, for me, it came out of that place of, you know, the need to reclaim what we own. Yeah. And so this is kind of inspired a little bit by my friend Philomena who told me in her Donegal accent, Kira, trouble will find you. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of thought, yeah, well, bring it on, you know, so that's it. Good. Let's well, hear shall it. We? Yeah, please. I have a fire in my belly. It's been there since I was a little girl I sat and listened to the women talking In the faraway hills where I was born Child, I listened where they gathered Heard a reverence in their words They spoke of Precious things that mattered Saw the wonder of a woman's world So trouble, come and find me And trouble, walk me home Trouble, lay down beside me Trouble, keep me warm that you the fire don't burn so sister reach your hand out to me these hands were made to hold let To take back the things we own From struggle The thing is born So trouble Come and find me Trouble Walk me home Trouble Lay down beside me Trouble Make me
Um, uh, Karen, mm. about fair play, yeah. um, what happens next? Um, I suppose I'd like to see women in any decision making about music or life in general mm. that we're treated with uh, kindness and respect and always included. You know, I think if you're talking about production, has very few women. I think ironically, actually, we've a, a lot of singers because we've had role models, uh, spectacular role models for singers in this country, like Mary and Francis mm. Black, Dolores. I think it's more of an issue for instrumentalists, actually. And it's about mm. our children realizing because, you know, you learn by experience and you need to know in your bones that women are uh, equal and so if we see women on stage we'll understand that here, here. it's a no-brainer really we yeah. just need to do it and sam how would you like the magdalene women to be remembered well the laundry in sean mcdermott street is sale agreed at the moment so i've started my next little campaign which is to have a memorial on site and i banged on the door of Dublin City Council for a good few weeks so now I'm on a committee <laughs> which gets to decide how that will be memorialised yeah. and like you said you can't move on until you acknowledge and mm-hmm. there's no shame or blame anymore so you can remember in a respectful and open and honest way. If you need a campaign song I know a couple of women who might <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually just before I start leave that I want you to tell them one the last story um, when you took your mother to the cinema Yeah, um, Margaret had, you know, no experiences. So we were trying to bring her out on little treats and things like that. So we asked her, would she like to go to the the pictures? (laughs) And um, we brought her to the Savoy and she was very excited. She got got her bag of sucky sweets and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. But when the lights went down, she had a total meltdown, a total panic attack. Um, She thought she was in the boot room which was a room in the industrial school in High Park, Drumcondra, where the kids' little polished boots would be all thrown in. It was like a little dungeon room. And they went to mass every Sunday with the, with the polished boots on. And then the boots were put away for the rest of the week. And if you were perceived as having done something naughty or looked sideways at a nun, you were thrown in the boot room for the day in the dark. So um, that brought all that back to her when, when she went to the Savoy Cinema and we just had to leave. Um, So, one of the things that has been really obvious and remarkable is the sort of feeling of sisterhood. And I know that all the women are very good at saying, now there are lovely men too supporting us. And of course, that's true. (laughs) true. But it it was a women's movement. And by a miraculous coincidence, Karen, you have a song. Well, I do. I have nearly have a song. We'll yes, because you're going to be writing it now, really, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's. Um, I was writing it a bit on the train on the way up this morning, so it's really <laughs> just about <laughs> encouraging one another and coming together as uh, women. It's, um, it's called "Sister, I Am Here for You." And um, thank you, you know, to everyone. It's been really a privilege to hear everybody's stories. And thank yes, you. yeah. The judgment, it came down yesterday For once the people yelled We got our way Truth is the t-
daughter of time The springs of justice Rose up to rhyme Let's take the road Let's travel through this Stormy weather Let's rise up Sister, I am here for you Here and I'm listening to Sister, I am here for you Here and I'm listening to We can be Trump and we can beat Brexit too the alt-right will even have their June Hope and love are our lifeline Freedom rings, can you hear a chime? Let's take the road, let's travel through Thank you, Charles. Absolutely beautiful. That's it from um, this episode of Pantasocracy, which we have been calling the awesome and all. 
episode, but I think now will be known as the blubbing episode. <laughs> so thank you to all of my guests here today. Um, Ken Casey, thank you very much. Kirsten Dean, thank you so much, Eva O'Connor, for um, your beautiful performance. Linda, uh, for explaining everything in historical context to us. And Sam, Sam, thank you so much thank you. for telling the story thank of you your very mother. Much. We are back next week with some less crying, more talking, hopefully. <laughs> and if you go to pantasocracy.ie, you can catch up on all things Pantasocracy, including some videos of today's performances and podcasts and all of that stuff. So uh, thank you very much. Woo! Woo!